you, Alexandria. What a day. I've been really excited about this day because we've been working with Justin and Sam on this for a while, and so it feels like the worst kept secret. Um, we've just been doing it and, and sharing with those when we get an opportunity. So now it's out in the open and um, just an incredible season for this community that we're, we're not splitting up. We're becoming a, a single family across this city worshiping Jesus. Well, we are continuing in the celebration of Easter. Some of you think Easter is a one-day event, but Easter is a celebration that lasts 40 days. It is a time for us to reorient our heart to the story of God. It is the most monumental event in human history. We believe that our God resurrected our King Jesus. More than a day or a celebration of spring, Easter is everything. The climax of our Christian story, it is God's invitation to belong to a new world. And Easter stands as this annual reminder that our God defeated death. The content of our faith is still Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And so as we live in Easter, as we practice Easter, we practice the resurrection. And this is how Eugene Peterson puts it on living the resurrection. He says the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. A life out of death, a life that trumps death, a life that is the last word, Jesus' life. The invitation of Easter is to live a life that is stronger than death. And this is the story that has become the centerpiece of our lives, and yet it becomes a part of our life that is increasingly difficult to share. I don't know if you feel that tension, but just this past week in Microchurch, we were reading a passage in which Jesus invites us into the process of sharing his good news, and we were all struck by just this, this tension we feel. In part, it's because the moment we reside in has become increasingly post-Christian. Now I want to unpack that term post-Christian using the work of Philip Reef as our guide. If you're unfamiliar, which most of you aren't as nerdy as me, so I would imagine you're not familiar, but Philip Reef was an American sociologist and cultural critic, and he wasn't a Christian at all. But in his work, Sickness Unto Death, Reef divided Western history into three phases, or what he calls worlds. And I think his work is a helpful summary in understanding how we have arrived at the moment we have arrived at. The first world he describes is the pre-Christian world. Think of pre-Christian Ireland, Scotland, or England before the gospel. This is a pagan culture with a pantheon of gods and the belief that something spiritual is hiding behind every bush. It's a culture that pushes towards belief in an enchanted reality. It is a world that practices slavery, human sacrifice, and violent superstition. Then comes the second world. This is the Christian or better said the Christianized world. Now to be clear, there has never been a Christian culture. 
Every society throughout history that claims to be Christian is some messy combination of Christianity and paganism. Not 4th century Rome, not 15th century England, and no, not 18th century America. For all the talk of America being a Christian nation, the founding of our country is a century of bloodshed, genocide, and slavery. And I don't say this out of contempt for America, but as a simple analysis that no nation, including our own, has ever looked like Jesus, which is the basic definition of Christian, is a place or people that look like Christ. But what Reef argues in this second world is that the cultural momentum of this second world pushed one towards Christian institutions. Or said differently, it is economically, politically, and socially expedient to be Christian in the second world. But what we find ourselves in is what Reef calls the third world, which he imagined as post-Christian. This isn't a world that has moved on from Christianity in so much as it is reacting against Christianity. In fact, so much of what we hold dear in our post-Christian moment finds its origin in Christianity. Justice, freedom and equality, religious pluralism, human dignity, care for the impoverished and marginalized. These values and this vision do not find their roots in evolutionary psychology. Rather, all find their ethical and philosophical origin in Jesus' socio-political vision of the kingdom. But to be post-Christian is to become increasingly unaware of these origins and to react against Christianity. It's almost like the West's rebellious teenage years. We don't care what we're rebelling against. We're just rebelling against everything. This might explain why your friends or neighbors will experiment with all sorts of spiritualities like astrology, psychic readings, or Buddhism, but would never accept your invitation to a Christian gathering. They're reacting against a Christian world. Particularly here in the Midwest, we are living through the monumental shift from that second world to the third world, one reacting against Christianity. And in her fantastic book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield really names this experience. This is what she writes. Let's face it, we have become unwelcomed guests in the post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative, read Orthodox, Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become or an Orwellian nightmare. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of the culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight. This moment is incredibly disorienting for those of us who remember the old world. And in the midst of this monumental change, how do we invite others to follow Jesus? How do we invite those we love to the God we love? How do we proclaim the good news when so many have already decided that it is not good news? 
Now, to be clear, to be very clear, I do not think the answer is to take up arms in the culture war to make America Christian again or any other methodology of enforcing virtue by power. I think Christianity is a faith of consent and intentional allegiance, a beckoning to follow Jesus willfully. Thus, it cannot be enforced at the edge of a sword, through legislation, or through education. But rather, I think that there is a practice of Jesus that subverts the ideological defenses of our neighbors and sets the table for an encounter with the kingdom. So let's look at the example of Jesus in Luke 19. In Luke 19, we find Jesus journeying towards his death in Jerusalem. And on this journey, he passes through a well-known city called Jericho. And upon entrance, he is greeted by a large crowd eager to see the one known for his healing and miracles. And this gives inspiration to the most well-known Sunday school of all time. I'm not going to sing it. This is what Luke writes. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Often when we hear tax collector, we think of a mild-mannered accountant. We imagine Zacchaeus as a small and bookish man, a short king that's just misunderstood by all of his friends and neighbors. But that does not square with the historic realities of first century Israel or the scandalous nature of this story. Remember, Israel is an occupied territory under the oppression of the Roman Empire. A Roman tax collector was one that collected exorbitantly high Roman taxes, often up to 50% of one's income, from their friends, family, neighbors, and fellow Jews. A tax collector was one that worked for the enemy. On top of that 50%, tax collectors were known to take their own fees. So some likely charged 60, 70, or even 80% of one's entire income just based on one's discretion, all the while being backed by a Roman garrison. And Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of Jericho. He was profiting off of his neighbors, his family, I would imagine former friends, and other tax collectors that worked for him. Zacchaeus is the guy at the top of a predatory multi-level marketing scheme benefiting from the exploitation of all. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. 
And threatened by the edge of a sword, Zacchaeus' neighbors are making him rich. Zacchaeus should not be invited to anything, much less dinner. For in first century Judaism, table fellowship, who you dined with, was a means of expressing the community you prioritized. It was a means of expressing the type of person you desired to be. So to share table fellowship was an intimate and boundary-marking practice. It said who is in and who is out. One only shared a meal with their closest friends, family, neighbors, and guests. For to share a meal with another was to be included in their honored community. So going to Zacchaeus' home was not the move. Zacchaeus was not the person who anybody should be sharing a meal with. I, Howard Marshall, comments on this story writing, to stay in such a person's home was tantamount to sharing in his sin. But throughout the ministry of Jesus, he is consistently criticized for who he shares meals with. He has a knack for having a meal with the depraved, the reviled, the outcast. In fact, one of Jesus' most influential set of parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son, begins with this setup. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them these parables. And this all sounds pretty cool on the first read. Jesus sounds pretty punk rock. He sounds anti-establishment. He sounds like he's bucking the system. It's not until we allow ourselves to wonder about the morally corrupt of our own time that we begin to get uncomfortable. So here's a thought experiment that I do not like. What if Jesus was found eating with white supremacists? What if Jesus was found eating dinner with Jeffrey Epstein and his ilk of sexually depraved? What if Jesus was found eating with El Chapo and his top enforcers? What if Jesus was found sharing a meal with pedophiles, corrupt politicians, porn stars, and violent extremists? These comparisons likely swell up feelings of confusion, anger, uncomfortability, and fear. I know because that's how I feel even suggesting such a thing. Think in that short thought experiment, you begin to understand the grumbling of the Pharisees as they see who Jesus is sharing a meal with. It's not until we start to wonder about what Jesus would do if he were us that we began to see the scandalous nature of Jesus' eating habits. Jesus had a way of taking something so ordinary as a meal and infusing it with significance, intention, and redemptive possibility. In the life of Jesus, something as simple as a meal became the setting in which the kingdom of God became tangible. In Luke, Jesus is on his way to a dinner at a dinner or leaving a dinner on almost every single page. Luke presents meals as one of Jesus' most basic strategies for doing what he was called to do. Listen to this. In Luke 5, Jesus is challenged with the question, why do you eat 
and drink with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke 7, a sinful woman, likely a sex worker, finds forgiveness at a meal she was not invited to. In Luke 9, Jesus becomes the host, feeding 5,000 with nothing but a few fish fillets and five loaves of bread. In Luke 22, Jesus gives his disciples a new practice that we call communion. A simple meal of bread and wine that becomes a central feature of our faith. And in Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus shares a meal with two heartbroken disciples. And in the breaking of bread, their eyes are opened and they recognize the resurrected king. Jesus takes something so radically ordinary and he invites the worst of us to share a meal. And he makes it an expression of his boundary-crossing kingdom. John Koenig asserts that for Jesus, the table and the kingdom were virtually synonymous. An ordinary meal can become a setting by which the kingdom of God is experienced and announced. So with the time we have remaining, I want to suggest three types of meals that we as apprentices of Jesus are invited to. A meal with God, a meal with family, and a meal with the lost. Quick word on each, starting with a meal with God. Some call it the Lord's Supper, others the Eucharist, others the Holy Communion. Whatever you call it, this meal that we've got on either side is central to the way of Jesus and at the center of the early church's worship. For the first followers of our risen Messiah, the highlight of their church gathering was not a song, it was not a sermon, it was a meal. Thus, in the pattern of this early church, and in response to Jesus' instructions to do this in remembrance of me, we center our community gatherings around a table and partaking in this meal that Jesus has given us. So at the end of this sermon, before you go out to brunch, before you go out to lunch, before you run your errands, and before you crash at home, you will be offered the opportunity to partake of the bread and the cup of our Lord. In some ways, it's a very literal opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the words will be spoken over you, Christ's body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. A reminder that our salvation and new life is made only possible by Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, if you're familiar with church history, there's a long, drawn-out argument on what this meal means and what its metaphysical makeup is. I will not get into all the different positions. I'll simply say this, that I appreciate John Calvin's position on the subject and believe that the Spirit is present when we take in remembrance. Christ has invited us to share a meal with him, a meal that is now infused with his story his power, and his hospitality. It is first and foremost the meal that Jesus gives us. And thus it would follow that Jesus would be present in the power of his spirit. So as we partake in the divine mystery, this meal that God sets for us, we trust that as we approach the table of Jesus, his spirit is at work sustaining our lives and nourishing us for life in his kingdom. We enjoy a meal with God every single Sunday. Second, 
we are invited to a meal with family. And by family, I mean the family of God. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we join the family of the redeemed. A divine household that transcends space and time, culture, nationality, and ethnicity. We are the family of God and families eat together. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, Luke describes the activities of that first church community. I read this passage to you literally all the time, so I'm not going to read it today. But in the short five verses, Luke mentions breaking bread, eating together, receiving food some four times, which is an absurd amount of times to mention something we do, most of us, three times a day, every single day. It's an absurd thing to mention when you're talking about the origins of this brand new organization. Like, imagine hearing about the start of Apple and thinking about what they had for lunch while they were still in a garage. Like, it doesn't make sense unless it was something vital at the heart of that community. Sharing meals together was not just a feature, it was a central component. Rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, parent, child, Jew, Gentile, it did not matter. All were welcomed at the table of God's people. When we come together as the family of God in micro churches, we declare that we are a new family learning to live as God's people. So hear this pastor's heart. If you are not involved in a micro church, let us pastor you into one. For the sake of our souls, we need to eat together. We need weekly potlucks of sandwiches, burrito bowls, or tacos. We need slow, awkward, bumbling conversations about work, school, and life. We need the rhythm of breaking bread in one another's homes after a long day of work. We need a meal that's not in front of a TV, a phone, or an iPad. Meals together, more than anything, remind us that we're human. Mike Cosper, in his book, Recapturing the wonder reminds us that meals are sacred because they force us to pay attention. Meals with one another are one of the few places where our attention is not split, assuming you've put your phone away. If your phone is put away, your attention is on the food that is in front of you, the drink that's in your hand, and whoever you're sitting at the table with. Meal times force us to pay attention to the here and the now, and we desperately need meals with family. Nothing extravagant or fancy, just little reminders of God's goodness in the company of others. So we are invited to a meal with God, we are invited to a meal with family, and then finally, a meal with the lost. Now you may have qualms with the phrase or the title, the lost, and I I get that. But I think lost strikes the right tone. We all get lost. Confession, I still use my phone to navigate to places I've been dozens of times. Uh, Don't ask Cassie about it, but I occasionally get lost just downtown, like a place I live two minutes from. I will turn on the wrong street, and Cassie will give me a hard time for it. We all get lost at times. Lost is not to say someone's immoral. It's not to say someone is unintelligent or to say someone is bad. It is simply to say they haven't arrived at a particular location. 
And this is the language Jesus uses for those who are yet to know him. Remember the final line at the end of our passage, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus' invitation is for any who find themselves wandering and lost to be adopted by God the Father and to find their home in the family of God. It is a beautiful invitation that often begins with a meal, with neighbors and friends that have already decided that the good news is not good. The simple invitation to a meal can be an opportunity to encounter the kingdom of God. Listen, Jesus' primary methodology for sharing the good news was not a marketing campaign. It was not a bait-and-switch concert. It was not a tent meeting. It was not sidewalk evangelism. It was eating and drinking with the lost. Again, Butterfield brings it home in a post-Christian community. Words can only be as strong as your relationships. Your best weapon is an open door, a set table, a fresh pot of coffee, and a box of Kleenexes. A meal late into the evening with tea, coffee, or a glass of wine where we share our hopes or our dreams or our deepest heartaches, where we mourn the state of our world or we begin to imagine what the world can be. We try to solve its most difficult problems. We sit around a table after another dessert. This provides the perfect setting for you to explain your story and what you found in Christ. It is the perfect setting for the good news to be put forth. And the good news is good news. Some of you grew up in environments in which the good news was not good news. And it may take a while to reframe that in your mind, but the good news is always good news. Our gospel is that in Christ, death has been defeated. We have been liberated from our sin and we are invited to reimagine our world as God first intended it. A new Eden, a garden turned into a city becomes the future of our world. The good news is good news and it is best shared over a meal. It is best shared over lots of dessert lots of coffee, with tissues readily available. Worship team, if you would join me on the stage. The past week has been hard. In less than two weeks, we have seen at least four headlines of children being shot for making a mistake. In New York, a 20-year-old woman is dead for driving down the wrong driveway. In Texas, two teenagers are recovering in a hospital for approaching the wrong car in a grocery store parking lot. In North Carolina, a six-year-old girl's basketball went into a neighbor's yard and he fired at her and her parents. And in our own backyard, Ralph Yarl is recovering from gunshot wounds after going to the wrong door. I don't say this lightly when I say this is demonic. A stronghold in our nation that turns our neighbors into threats. 
think our response to this is to pray and to contend against the darkness, to open up the possibility for lives to be transformed. But I also think our calling is to practice radical and courageous hospitality. To be a community that shows the world that there is a life that is stronger than death. There is a life and a hospitality that is stronger than any fear. A hospitality that transforms strangers into friends. Our little movement against the darkness is to practice meals. When we feel so disempowered, so hopeless in this moment, our little response is to say, who could I have a meal with? Who is nearby that just needs a warm, home-cooked meal and a place to live? Our little move against evil and darkness is to practice meals. And in doing so, we might reveal the kingdom of Jesus. So this is our practice this coming week, to rethink mealtime and the opportunity that they present. Most of you eat at least twice. You should eat at least twice. What if each meal becomes an opportunity to love and show the kindness of God to a neighbor. And in doing so, might the kingdom be revealed just a simple, ordinary act. So in this, I have a few pragmatic suggestions just to get you thinking in the right way. First, resist idealizing meals. Maybe when you think of meals, you think of something on the cover of a magazine or something you've seen on Instagram. Edison bulbs in the backyard, a 10-foot handcrafted mid-century table, 20-somethings that are ethnically ambiguous, dining over an extravagant farm-to-table spread. That is entertainment. That is not hospitality. And there's nothing wrong with it. But realistically, how often can you pull that off? I'll give you my answer, like once a year, maybe. Don't idealize meals or hospitality. Make it accessible. Think taco night with paper plates. Think grilled cheese and tomato soup. Think of ordering a pizza and sitting around on folded chairs. Listen, our microchurch knows uh, we barely do anything fancy. Uh, Cassie and I love to cook, but I can't really make teriyaki salmon with mixed vegetables over rice before people. Don't idealize meals and hospitality. Keep it simple. Second, hospitality is a posture, not a resource. Remember, Jesus was a homeless, itinerant rabbi who relied upon using other people's space. In our story today, Jesus invited himself over to a rich guy's place for dinner. So what excuse do you have? Whose house can you invite yourself over to? Hospitality is a posture not a resource. Do not let excuses limit you from doing what Christ has called you. So can I just fire through a few of your excuses real quick? Because I guarantee you, as I've been talking, you have had excuses come to your mind. So let me just blow all of those up just for a little bit. Your apartment is not your castle. It is a gift from God and you need to be willing to use it. Your roommate can leave for an evening. They will be fine. I promise you. You are not too busy. You are too distracted. 
rest is not an excuse for isolation. You can learn to cook. That is what YouTube is for. I promise you. A burrito bowl is very easy. Small talk is necessary. So get good at it. To ask how someone's work is going is to ask how 40 plus hours of their week has been. It can tell you a whole lot about the first thing that comes to their mind. So get good at small talk. Get good at asking follow-up questions. And get good at sharing your own work. Hospitality takes courage. So get a moment of courage and shoot out that text. I give you permission that after we come up for communion, as you partake of the meal God sets for you, you have my permission to text someone. You have my permission to pray, God, who is in my life that I need to shoot a text and I need to invite over for dinner? What co-worker do I need to grab lunch with and pay for? Who do I need to have a meal? Finally, we are nourished for our mission by partaking in meals with God and with family. Each week as we come together to eat with God and to eat with one another, we are strengthened and prepared for meals with the lost. These two gifts of coming together in communion and gathering together in one another's homes are reminders of how blessed we are and loved by God our lives are not perfect, but they are filled with joy and encouragement from one another and from our God. Why would we not desire to invite more people to experience life like this? Why would we not want more leaves in our table? Why would we not want to pull up more chairs for more people? So each time we gather on a Sunday and partake in communion or in homes as we dying as a micro church these should be moments that remind us that there are families there are neighbors there are friends who have yet to taste and see that the lord is good we're surrounded by people who have yet to taste the goodness of our god why not start with us if you would stand So I will lead us in the confession in here, here in just a moment, but would you just quiet yourself for a moment? Maybe you place your hands out in front of you just as a posture of surrender. Let's just settle ourselves before the Lord, before we're invited to His name. our excuses 
beckoning us to see our dining room table not as a sanctuary, but as a mission. An opportunity to invite our neighbors into the goodness of your kingdom. As we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, let us be quick to confess our sins, for our God is quick to forgive. If you would pray this prayer on the screens with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Our Savior taught us that whoever would eat of his bread and drink of his cup will find life everlasting in his kingdom. Our invitation is that whoever is hungry for more of Jesus, you may in a moment, we'll open up the tables, and whenever you are ready, proceed forward and receive the cup, the bread of our Lord. When you finish, there'll be prayer team members on either side. Maybe you need to stop and pray over something specific. Maybe there's a health challenge. Maybe there's a job situation. Maybe there's just a neighbor whose name came up in this sermon. You just want someone to pray with you. Once you've received communion, feel free to pray with someone and continue to Thanks for listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.